All right, so we're talking about lockless programming. All right, let's do it. All right, so usually when I hear about lockless programming, it's right after somebody's run into like a deadlock with mutexes and they're like, I hate this, I hate this so much, there's gotta be an alternative. So actually, can I point of clarification, is it lockless or lock-free? Semantic. I think lock-free, I guess. So I'm gonna talk about that a little bit, actually. So lock-free programming is in kind of three, three levels. The lowest level or the like least strict level is abstraction free. So abstraction free programming means that if you have a bunch of threads and you suspend all but one, you guarantee that that thread can make progress. Okay, if you at random have three threads and yeah. at random sus suspend any two, yeah, the third one will automatically. The third one should be able to keep going, which immediately rules out anything with a mutex, right? Because if you suspend a thread that had a lock on a mutex, right you're not gonna be able to unlock it. I really like this definition. Okay, so that's abstraction free. Okay. The level above that is lock free. So lock free programming as one of the levels in it is lock free, but. But wait, what, what does lock free mean? Yeah, yeah. So lock free means that uh, if all the threads are running, you guarantee global progress. So something will keep moving forward. And what that kind of means, and the much stricter definition is an arbitrary method will at some point complete in finite time, which in like looser terms is you're not gonna run into a live lock. You're not gonna have one thread undoing the work of the other thread, which then undoes the work of the other thread. So at some point you'll make some progress on an arbitrary method. So but it's not just live locks, it's also deadlocks. Yeah, so abstraction-free kind of... Means no mutexes. No mutex kind of means no deadlocks. This means no live locks. Like a thread won't be undoing work you're doing and then you undo their work. So you end up like not really making progress even if the threads are running. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then the strictest one is weight-free programming, which means that uh, a thread will make progress in finite time all the threads will make progress in finite time. So there's obstruction free. This means no mutexes. No, no, it doesn't mean no mutexes because you could have a spin lock, which uh, if it gets suspended, the others can't go on. Like, let's say you just have a Boolean that you set to true if you want to have ownership of something. Yes. And you have to set it to false for other people to be able to change that thing. And yes. they're all waiting for that to become false so they can take it. You don't have any mutexes, but you're not obstruction free. Because somehow what I just said was still true. Obstruction free means no mutexes. Yeah, but it doesn't solely mean no mutex. Like well, just, okay. just the fact that you don't have a mutex doesn't mean you'll be obstruction free. So what I'd like to do for the audience is basically simplify. There's a lot been said. I, the way I've understood it, importantly, is obstruction free means no mutexes. Lock free means at least one thread will make progress. And weight-free means all threads will make progress within a finite amount of time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, close okay. enough. Close enough. Okay. And today we're going to talk about... So, today we're going to talk about all three, actually. Oh! That's right. All right. So, um, I, I made a lock-free queue. Okay. Um, which, if you... We'll get into it a little later. If you use it as a single producer, single consumer, I think is weight-free but I'm not entirely sure. So actually, before we even dive into like the implementation, like were you able to figure out what, it, 
my assumption is that the whole reason people are even talking about lock-free, lockless, uh, obstruction-free, basically multi-threaded programs without really any mutexes or locks is because people want to avoid the cost of a lock. Yeah. So that's that's usually how it's put forward of, oh, I don't want to pay for a context switch. I need this to be really fast. Right. Uh, we'll kind of get into that because with what I tried, so the assumption that, is that doesn't all, seem all to these implementations true. And valve. we can, yeah, I prefer I, Valve. So I mean, I'm sure he would prefer too. Valve as well. <laughs> okay, but all three of these implementations are concurrent safe. Yeah, yeah. So okay. they're all they're all thread safe. Right, thread safe. Um, two of them are lock free, and one of them uses a mutex. Okay. Fun fact: the the one uh, I tried to implement from the paper, it took me like three four days of tearing my hair out. The one with the mutex, fifteen seconds. <laughs> no problem. I mean, it makes sense. Um, so I think what I'll do is um, talk about why people would want a lock free queue. Yeah, I, and, I want to know this. And too. the context switch is only part of it. But the guarantees that you'll make progress are pretty important. If you have a multi-threaded application, let's say one of the threads isn't so important, mm. um, but one thread is really important, you need to guarantee that that thread will always be making progress. Like, you're a spaceship. This thread has to deal with like sending commands to the thrusters. You don't want that to ever block for an undefined amount of time, especially if another thread just doesn't get scheduled for some reason. Actually, this sounds really interesting. But then can I further understand what you actually mean by this? Does it, so this this is under the uh, definition of lock-free, the second level. Even, even obstruction-free. Okay, okay, so fine, even So this means, what this gives you is that you can have one thread that whenever it tries to do something, it always gets to do something or that within some amount of time, it will get to do something. So for obstruction-free, let's let's assume some weird kernel configuration that says, hey, this thread is always on a core, is always scheduled in. This other thread might be sharing a core with a bunch of other threads, might be getting swapped in and out, right? right. This primary thread, the really important one, I guarantee will always be scheduled. And because it's always scheduled, I can guarantee it'll, with obstruction-free, you can say, It'll never get stuck forever because the less important thread got hung up, got suspended. I gotta say, this sounds, you know, there seem to be overlaps with the, that, that, you know, real-time programming tries to deal with as well. Maybe. I didn't look so much into that, but okay. presumably, yeah, this, I think that's the selling point for me, at least, because from what I tried, lock-free isn't actually faster. It seems to be slower. So uh, why don't I why don't I just kind of describe the way I'm measuring it? And it's not the you know most rigorous measurement, but uh, what I do is I have a bunch of pr producer threads that are coming up with a random string mm -hmm. and queuing it up, and then a bunch of consumer threads that are popping this random string, and the producers will like remember all the strings they've generated, and they'll generate let's say a thousand samples, and once they're done, they'll save it to some set that is protected by a mutex. So at the end, I do use a mutex, but it's not important for the queue. Uh, and the consumers will pop all these strings and store what they've consumed. At the end, I gather all these sets and I make sure that the consumers never 
uh, consumed a string another consumer has consumed okay. to make sure there isn't any like race things aren't getting picked up multiple times. Okay. And also make sure that every string a producer has produced has been consumed. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and I timed this essentially. Okay, so what you're doing is making sure that every string that's been produced has been consumed at most one time. And has been consumed at least one. So exactly one time okay. it has to have been consumed. Okay. All right. So people listening can't see the code, but it's here. I promise. I mean, that's why we talk. That's why we explain talk. it in a way that can be understood. It's also on GitHub. It, well, yeah. It's going to be. It's on going GitHub. to be on GitHub. Anyways, so we go through. We produce a bunch. We consume a bunch. And I. Um, I had this run for multiple combinations of numbers, producers, and number of consumers. So okay. uh, I have 12 cores on this laptop. Mm -hmm. um, so I had it go through and like, I can have up to six consumers or up to six producers and any combination thereof. And I generated a bunch of heat maps of how long each one takes. Takes to do what? Uh, takes to go through this whole process of like produce all the samples that are going to be produced and then finish consuming them. Okay. Yep. Uh, so the first one is my implementation of the Valois paper. The second one is my implementation of a simple one with a mutex. And the third one is the boost lock free queue. And interestingly, the mutex one fastest. That is really, really, really interesting. It is interesting. So I was kind of curious about this. Why is it the fastest? Because presumably when you have a mutex, you're going to you're going to have to context switch, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But if you read up a bit, most modern mutexes, they'd have a little spin lock that they try at before they go in context switch. So they'll, they'll have a spin lock, which doesn't context switch, try to do their thing and then go down and go to because, the kernel. And, and because there's always something to do usually in your setup, because the way you set it up, it's like a, it's, the producers are always putting things in that queue. Yeah. So there's always something to do. So it never really goes to the context. Which so the problem statement is kind of designed to have as much contention as possible. The producers are just slamming it in there and the consumers yeah. are turning red. So yeah. does this mean that it's not going to lock unless it actually needs to lock? Um, it, won't, it won't go to the kernel and context switch, I believe. I think it'll do something with atomics and I don't know the exact implementation, but it won't do the heavy, heavy thing until it's spun a little and decided, okay, I've spun enough. Now I'll go do the heavy thing. I'll be honest. I also kind of just lost you at that, that most modern implementations of mutexes before they actually go and do an atomic acquire, they're doing some sort of spin weight that yeah. has nothing to do with atomics. No, no, it has something to do with atomics. It doesn't, it doesn't context switch. As far as I understand, which could be a not right understanding, but that's that's what I gathered. I mean, all this to say that this was an explanation of why mutexes aren't that slow, but then I didn't quite understand. It. So let's say I'm the thread that's scheduled in and I go to acquire my mutex. Right. If you have a naive implementation, you're immediately going to context switch. The so scheduler is going to be like, OK, I'll go find another thread. At the time that you go to acquire. When you go to acquire the mutex. But if the mutex spins a little, tries to grab it without context switching, without going away from the thread context, then it can like spend a little time just trying to acquire it in a busy loop before going and being like, okay, my thread's gonna sleep, someone else can get scheduled in. I have a, I have a question. 
Did you ever go higher than your computer has what twelve cores? Twelve, 12 yeah. cores. So, did you ever go more than six producers and consumers to force a context switch? Then uh, a context switch would be required. Yeah, I kind of assumed there would be because I was running Chrome and stuff. Yeah, uh, my Chrome famously uses no threads. Yeah. <laughs> Never context switches. Um, but that's a good point. And um, Herb Sutter has a has a talk where he is talking about lock free programming. And there he does have um, he does something similar where he has a linked list that's lock free. Mm -hmm. And he has, again, a heat map like this where he shows if you have more and more producers and consumers, what does it look like? And there's a definite cliff where the sum of the producers and consumers is more than the amount of cores he has. And you can see a marked difference in like how much he was able to, yeah. how much work he was able to do before and after that cliff. So as you can see from the heat maps, Mutex fastest in general, but they're all pretty comparable. Uh, obviously when you have zero producers and zero consumers, you, it doesn't take you any time because you're what? not doing anything. <laughs> So I ended up spending a lot of time in GDB uh, to debug this because lock-free stuff is also a nightmare to debug. Mm. And I ended up putting breakpoints before every single thing that was going to touch anything that another thread would see and stepping through. And an interesting thing you see is that when you're stepping through um, for the lock-free implementation, every time that, let's say you just have two threads, two consumers, and they're both trying to access the same region in memory, um, one is going to go get the atomic and, and grab it and do something with it. And if the other one tries to do it at the same time, the, the previous thread will probably have changed things. So the next thread has to throw away all its work and do it again. Mm. So what you end up with is like you're in constant contention. You, you miss it by just a little bit. So the next time you miss it just by a little bit. So the next time you miss it just by a little bit, uh, as opposed to mutexes where you, if you miss it, you get told to sleep. So by the time you come back, it's clear. And then you don't end up in this loop of always missing it. I see. Oh, okay, this is really interesting. But can you explain something to me? What do you mean by atomic? Yeah. All right, so let's look at the implementation a little bit. Okay, so yeah, like for me, a lot of this interesting part is like, how do you implement obstruction-free or mutex-free thread-safe code? Okay. so. So let's talk about NQ right now. Let's talk about no consumers. You only have producers. They're just trying to NQ. Put something into the queue. Yep. Mm -hmm. So here's kind of the logic that goes. You're going to have a head and a tail for your linked list of nodes in the queue. Mm -hmm. um, so when you go to NQ, you're going to take your value. You're going to wrap it into a node that ha has its next pointer pointing to null. Um, OK. And then you're going to try to, you're going to take the latest detail node and you're going to try to swap its next yeah. with yourself. Okay. So the way that uh, one of the primitives for atomics is called compare exchange. Mm. Um, and compare exchange says, uh, I'm going to give you the thing I expect it to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you the thing I want it to be. If you are the thing I expected you to be, then make yourself the thing I want you to be. Okay. So if something changed and the value isn't your expected value, you fail. Like you, it returns false. I didn't swap anything. Okay. So you try to switch the tail, and then if you succeeded, then you sorry you swap the the next pointer in the tail. 
if you succeed, then you swap to the tail with yourself. Yeah. So basically, you're like, can I try to restate that? You 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 go grab the tail, mm -hmm. and you're gonna try to make the next pointer of that the new element. Right. And the way that this whole compare and exchange works is that when you go see the tail, you're gonna say, "Hey, is the tail what I? This is what I think the tail is currently." Right. And if it still is that, here, add on the new tail. Exactly. No, swap swap the tail with this node I've just created. So it's two steps. First, you say the tail's next pointer should be null. Right. And if it is null, switch it with my node. Okay. And then the, the tail pointer should be the tail I thought it was. Right. And if it still is, switch it with me. So does this mean you're like inserting the new element before like the tail or like after the tail? So you're saying the, the node after the tail is going to be this node. And if that succeeds, you're saying, okay, now that node is the tail. Right. Oh, so you're just moving the pointer, the tail pointer. Right. Okay. So here's the really important bit that makes this obstruction free. If you just had that, let's say you get suspended and the next producer comes on. The next producer is going to be like, okay, the next, the, the, the tail's next pointer should be null. But it's not going to be null because it's going to be this node, the other thread added. Right. So it's going to fail that. If it fails that, it says, okay, if the tail is still the tail I thought it was, it should now be the tail's next pointer. Say that one again. So, and this is this is the part that makes lock free so confusing because you have to make sure. I mean, I will also say it could be partly because the way you explain yeah. things All right. is All right. like I've got a hand up my butt or something. <laughs> Let me try to explain it again. Yeah. Let's say I'm I'm the first, I'm thread one, thread one producer. Right, I've created my node and I've said the tail's next pointer is my node. But now I get suspended forever. Right. The other producer comes on and says, okay, is the tail's next pointer null? And you're gonna find yeah, out no. no, it isn't. Yeah. Because it had the old tail. Because it had it had the other it, it had, had the first thread's new node. It but it never got to switch the tail pointer. Yeah. So now the second thread has to say, okay, it's not null. So I'm going to make the tail the tail's next pointer. So it's finishing the work that the first thread never got to finish. Oh, wow. But what if the first thread comes back? The first thread comes back. It's going to say, if the tail is still what I thought was the tail was, then switch it. But now the tail's changed because the other thread took care of that for you. But mm. what if the other thread hadn't taken care of that? Or like you didn't get to the other? So as Herb Sutter's talk is called lock-free programming or how to juggle razor blades. That's, <laughs> that's what lock-free program. It's like having a little baby bird and if you do anything wrong, you're just gonna snap its neck. This makes complete sense to me though. That's... But it is very delicate, right? But, you, your threads have to help your other threads and you have to make sure that no matter what you do, you're not going to mess each other up. So, so I've had a question for a while that I think is unrelated. Why is the canonical example cues? Is uh, it the canonical example or is it an example? It's the one chose? I always hear about. Oh, it's yeah. the one in Herb Sutter's talk, as far as I know. Uh, I think it's because if you have a multi-thread safe queue, then you can pretty much implement anything else that threads will want to do. You, you give yourself a way to pass messages in a thread safe manner. I mean, I guess you could build a heap from this because heaps are nothing but 
like linked list but fancier view. Yeah. So so Herb Sutter used the linked list instead as his example. Okay. It, it was a linked a list philo. is just a sad queue. Yeah, it was a philo queue, but yeah. Um, and I'm going to be referring back to his talk a lot because it's a very good talk. If you want to understand more about locks, a philo queue, or is it commonly called a stack? Sorry, not us. No, no, no. That would be. That'd be FIFO. That'd be FIFO. Q that only has push front and pop front. Mm -hmm. That's that's what he implemented. Wait, push back and pop front. No, no, push front, pop that's front. That's a stack. That's a stack. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. <laughs> Wait. So do three people unanimously agree. The lecturer today is an idiot. <laughs> what? Wait, wait. So which one did he implement? A Q stack or Q? Stack. stack. I guess stack. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which, yeah, I think it is. It is FIFO. So, how would you implement a doubly ended queue? <laughs> you would have to think of another four days straight and use GDB a whole ton more. So, actually, fun fact, and I'm going to complain a little bit about C++ here. Uh, well, so I wanted to actually talk about it. So, in this, though, right, like, a lot of people are familiar with atomic things, and the, 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 the main atomic construct that people are familiar with is a mutex, is a lock. But there are these kind of single line operations that mm -hmm. are atomic that you can tell the CPU to say, check and set. Yeah, exactly. So that's what this compare exchange is. And there's two kinds of compare exchange. There's strong and there's weak. And the weak is allowed to spuriously fail, like you got the condition right, but I'm going to tell you you didn't. Uh, whereas strong will be, will guarantee you. because. A lot of the time you'll have a while loop where you keep trying to do the thing until you get it right. Mm -hmm. um, and in those, the weak one is more efficient than the strong one. Okay. So I have another question. Is Atomics implemented on the CPU? I believe so, yes. Yeah. Because an important thing they do also is Atomics will add uh, memory barriers, which is, so if you, if you just have a couple of- So what is a memory barrier? So let's say you have two variables, A and B, that you assign. Yeah. Your compiler is allowed to reorder that if it wants to. And the CPU is allowed to reorder that if it wants to, as long as to a single core, it'll look the same. Right. But when you have multiple threads, multiple cores, trying to access that same memory, you need to add a memory barrier, which tells the compiler and the CPU to be like, OK, before this memory barrier, if anybody wants to inspect the state, you'll have to have applied all the operations before you get past that memory barrier. Okay. And on the other hand, you can add a memory barrier that says, if if I try to load before this, uh, you'll I'll want you to have ordered everything beforehand so that after that it looks you know coherent to me. How are memory barriers implemented? They're CPU instructions. They're like. So how is this? Okay, I, I think. I I have a dumb question. I I'll think we probably can use have one a of dumb those. answer. So, so standard, right, mm -hmm. implies that it can run on a bunch of CPUs. Everything where the standard, standard is like supported. you mean C plus plus standard. C plus plus standard. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is this is these atomic instructions supported in every CPU? Then I'm probably like, like compilers are only targeted at certain. That architectures, is right? So I'm assuming that if your architecture isn't supported, then you don't get to compile with that compiler. Yeah, that's fair. But I wonder, because I think I think that could be software implementations of Atomics, or can there just not be a software implementation of Atomic in a multi-threaded 
I don't, if you want to maintain the definitions of lock free, weight free, obstruction free, you mm -hmm. can't. There are the standard library for ones that don't have those yeah. instructions will do it in software, but then you lose your lock free, weight free, obstruction free guarantees. And they don't tell you that you've lost. I mean, presumably you, 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 you end up knowing, you know. Well, no, like. You know what hardware you're running it on. So yeah, you're... exactly. You'll know that you're doing like some microprocessor that has a compiler built by one guy in Latvia. I think that's. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that's a fair assumption. If you're down in this kind of level of lock-free programming, you know, I think you you'll ask the questions that Carl here mm -hmm. is asking. But I also think like. Like they're exposing these like standard atomics and doing all that stuff, but they're not being super forthright about whether it's going to run on the CPU or whether they're going to implement it on software. Like, do you want it to pass in a flag that says for x86 architecture? Am I just not compiled? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a good question. Like, I'm afraid. Lev, well, I'm presuming your your computer has an x86. Yeah, it's yeah. a fairly recent Intel. It's probably going to have standard atomics. I think I could run this on a server from five years ago, potentially, or 10 years ago, and not have atomics that work, but still have a GCC for that foreign operating system that would run on that, that is not supported. But a modern GCC that has standard atomic yes. and will work on that I architecture? I think Ubuntu 2004 could work on like a Celeron or a Pentium and maybe they don't have Atomic. But maybe they also don't have GCC that comes with a GWC that has standard Atomic. I, I mean, my, my assumption is that you'll be able to install it with your OS, wouldn't you? Like you could install the latest OS on whatever the hell you want. I mean, can you, if things are compiled, targeted at that, not being able to run those instructions, would you be able to install it? Like if your OS is going to have programs that use instructions that are unsupported on your thing, would you yeah. be able to install I, I, and run the it? The specific one I'm thinking of is like Raspberry Pi, fairly common, mm -hmm. ARM32. I would guess that the specific ARM1, the $30 processor that's in that Raspberry Pi doesn't do Atomics, but I'm pretty sure I can get the latest GCC on that thing. And it will hide the fact that all these atomic stuff is done in software. And yeah, I mean, that's a thing worth looking up. I, I don't have any idea, to be well, honest. Well, while we're betting, I, I would say that the I, I'm, I'm going to err Very, on, very skeptical looks. I'm going to err on the left side that said the compiler will scream at you. Your compiler yeah. knows about the architecture. The compiler will know about the architecture. It has to know. It has to know the architecture or can't compile that architecture. <laughs> Anyways, I think I so like at going back to the point that you made earlier and you were kind of wishy-washy on that statement, which was that this is a very, very fragile kind of I, I agree with you. Like it's already pretty, you know, today at least, a unanimous opinion that just thread safe code, multi you know, parallel programming is just a pain and difficult altogether. This is just one more level of difficulty. Yeah, so if programming with mutexes is like holding a loaded gun, then programming with lock-free is like somebody's pointing the gun at you and whispering, just shoot, just shoot. <laughs> 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 
Which I'm going to talk about the incredibly frustrating bug I ran into while I was coding this, which is atomic compare exchange um, takes in your expected and your desired value for an atomic and then uh, try to switch it, right? But a, a, a feature, let's say, that they added to it is you pass in a reference to your expected, and if it doesn't match, it'll set your expected value to be the current value, which- Say that one again slower. So let's say I have the next pointer in my tail, and I say, I expect that to be something. You expect it to be A. I expect that to be A. So I pass in a reference to A. Okay. And then if it isn't A, yeah. it sets A to be what the current value is. Which it is- sets A to be what the current value so is. Let's say, which is. So let's say T next is five. And I right. pass in my expected value, which is a variable holding the value seven. Right. If it fails, it'll be like, your expected is now five. Cause I checked. And the value was five, so now you should expect it to be five. Oh, really? Wow, that's really interesting. And Herb Sutter mentions this in his talk, which I watched many times before I started. Okay, so this thing will basically, so you pass in a reference mm -hmm. of the expected. It will change the value of your reference. It will change the value of your expected value. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Which Herb Sutter mentions, like, I'm not sure if I like this, but it's kind of nice because you usually use it on the loop. I'd forgotten that bit of the talk when I was writing this. So I spent two straight days trying to hunt down this seg fault. And this really feels like you're on a road trip with a friend and you decide to swap out so that you can drive for a bit. And your friend gets out, but he leaves the car in drive. So you have to get out of your seat and run around while the car is moving. And sure, you get to your destination faster, but at what cost? Okay, but I can see that there is like a value in that. Wait, what is the value? Oh, okay. So the issue that you don't, you don't know what the current, if, if that wasn't a feature, then you wouldn't be able to check what the current value is. Right, right. Okay. Exactly. This gives you a way of knowing what was actually the current value so you can. So really what your you logic want to do is and then go back. So really what you want to do before you do this compare and set thing is, so you have the expected, you create a temporary expected, put the expected into that, pass in the temporary expected, which will be changed by the compare and set if it's not the expected. So your temporary expected is now what it actually is. Exactly. I, I think I explained it in a way where all the listeners followed it pitch perfect. Yep. Yeah. Pitch perfect. So that's what I ended up doing. So all these pointers are actually shared pointers, and I'll talk a little bit about why that's the case. Uh, that was what I was going to ask about. That we'll, we'll get to that. So they're shared. Also, shared pointers implement uh, are implemented using mutexes now. They're implement. I think in GCC they might be atomics. You can implement a shared pointer with atomics and not mutexes. No, my question is how much more. Um, overhead did that in your benchmarking, I would assume that had some impact. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Um, you, but you, I, you I think, I think just... in GCC, they, they do use atomics and not mutexes for reference counting. I think that's just one more level of overhead. I feel like you've kind of brushed this aside as non-trivial, but I mean, we'll, it's trivial, we'll, but... we'll talk, we'll talk about that. Don't okay. worry. 
So, um, so in this, I use shared pointers and I can't pass in null pointer because there's no null pointer shared pointer. So I create a shared pointer pointing to null. Okay. And I was passing this in as my expected value and then running into seg faults because my null pointer was getting changed to be random nodes in the queue oh. over and over again. I was going insane. Okay. Yeah. This is the car still in drive. Car still in drive. So why use shared pointers? So why use shared pointers? So for that, we have to talk about the DQ. So let's talk about how DQ works. It's a lot simpler. You grab your head pointer. Uh, you say, okay, is the next pointer of my head pointer null? If it is, return no value. My my queue is empty. Uh, if it return is return no value or oh oh the DQ method would return. Yeah, it would. It returns an optional that says nothing. Oh, if head is null. If no, if the next pointer in head is null. Head itself is is kind of a dummy node. I see. I you see. always have a head node, but it's sometimes pointing it's to pointer to head. Yeah. Okay. Um so if the next pointer on head is null, then you don't have new values to return, return null value. Um if it isn't, then what you do is you try to swap your head pointer with the head's next pointer. Right. And if you succeed, you return the value. Okay. What happens if you don't succeed? If you don't succeed, then, that then um, that means that you return. Oh, no, then you just keep trying. You keep trying that over and over again. It's wow. in a while loop. Yeah. Um, what are the cases when you won't succeed? If somebody else got there before you and they swapped the head pointer forward. Okay. Okay, so why? Surely you'd grab just the next one, right? If there was something to be grabbed. So eventually, if there's something to be grabbed, you'll eventually grab the next thing until the queue is oh, empty. Because point. you'll while and then you'll pick up the next head. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so why, why shared pointers? So there's an interesting problem called the ABA problem, which is let's say we were using raw pointers, right? And uh, I grab my node and I have it now. I pop it off the queue and then I return the value, but I also need to delete this node, right? I need to free the memory that this uh, dynamically allocated node was taking up. Okay. You can't do that easily because what if the other guy also tried to pop it at the same time? You both popped it or like you pop it and then go to check to delete it, but the other guy popped and deleted his beforehand and then allocated a new node that node's probably going to end up in the same place in memory. I have not followed it's, this. It's a confusing problem. So essentially the problem becomes is once you retrieve your head pointer, oh God, I might have actually forgotten how this goes. So consumer one dequeues it, gets the pointer, and now it has to delete it. Okay. And fortunately for you, there's such thing as editing. A few moments later. Oh, and we're live. Okay, so why use shared pointer? The reason to use it is this thing called the ABA problem, okay. which is a kind of recurring problem in lock-free programming, especially when you're using, well, when you're using pointers. Okay. So um, let's say you're a consumer. Yes. You go to grab your H, you go to grab your head pointer and return the value. Yeah, so can I actually phrase it in a way where I can follow along? So let's say that you have your queue. I'm using your mm -hmm. queue. It's got one element in it. And you've got two consumers. 
let's say you have two consumers and a producer. Okay. I think you need multiple consumers and a producer. Okay. So consumer one goes and says, okay, I'm going to load the head pointer. And the head pointer is at memory region one, let's say. Consumer one is going to go ahead and load. Yeah, you need to load this atomic value. You're saying load, get me what the value of this atomic variable is right now. And you're doing that by saying DQ? No, you're saying that by atomic load. It's the operation that kind of sets up the memory barriers for you and like goes and retrieves that. This is what's happening in DQ. Yeah, yeah this is happening. Okay, in you're DQ. saying the consumer thread. Yes. The consumer yeah. went to go ahead and say DQ. Right, right. DQ on that consumer thread says atomic load. Says atomic load on the head pointer. Okay. You get your head pointer and you say next and you say, okay, my next has some value. Yep. So I'm going to return that value and move my head pointer forwards. Yep. Um, at the same time, another thread also went to do that, and they also loaded the head pointer at the same time you were doing it. Like, not exactly the same time, but like one step before. And okay. then they get suspended for a while. Yep. Uh, during that time, a producer goes and produces a new, and the first consumer goes and deletes their head pointer. Yep. Um, and then the producer comes in and says, okay, I've got a new element. Well, you've just deleted this region of memory that is conveniently the size of a node. Mm -hmm. So what you're probably going to get is when you're creating this new node, you're just going to put it in that recently freed memory. Interesting. Well, now you go back to that consumer thread that was suspended. And it was like, hey, I expect this pointer to be to this value. Right. Oh, wait, it is. Because the other node just got allocated in that same region of memory. But it's a different node that just happens to have the same region of memory. Oh, dear God. So you end up double freeing, not double freeing, you end up freeing this piece of memory that shouldn't have been freed because you thought it was the old node, but it's actually the new node. Yeah. In this case, what's the side effect? So you've got, let's say you've had, I'm going to name these guys, consumer one, consumer two, producer one. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in the queue was one node. Mm -hmm. Consumer one went to DQ. Mm -hmm. It DQs. Consumer two went to DQ, but halfway through got suspended. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, they both have the same pointer to head. Right. Consumer one and consumer two are currently have loaded into memory the same pointer to head. Mm -hmm. And producer one comes along and adds a new node. Right. And it happens to get added in the same region of memory that consumer one just freed the previous node from. Exactly. And consumer two then wakes up having done half the work already, mm -hmm. goes and says, oh, there is a node and would end up effectively returning the new node that was produced by producer one. Yeah. If I understood you right, at the very least, that's what would end up happening. Yeah. Okay. I think got so. it. But it isn't so, a desired. So, but here's the question that I have with shared pointers. I think I understand how this is prevented, but let's say we were to use unique pointers instead. Would that still be the case? Like, I guess uh, unique pointers would prevent it as well. Yeah. So it's just like a you pointer just, with a guard. So well, essentially what you need is either garbage collection. The thing that used to be used a lot is hazard pointers where you like store pointers you've recently tried like we're gonna delete but you just like store them for later and then delete them in a batch right um 
but shared pointers now do the reference counting. So they're the like preferred way of doing it. Well, why shared? Doesn't shared or unique? Doesn't matter. Okay. Like smart pointers. A smart are the preferred way of doing it. it shared like pointers can be copied. That's the important thing because you're going to be copying it all around. That I don't understand how a unique pointer can be used. Yeah, I mean, I you can move. You can move. I, I actually wonder if moving would break that assumption again. That's what I'm wondering, whether you have to use a shared pointer. And th that's what I'm curious about. But I, I legitimately cannot think through it. Yeah, this is incredibly tough. All right. Because I'm wondering if you if you replace the shared pointer with an identical looking shared pointer with shared pointer itself get confused. Well, shared pointer, <laughs> shared pointer is keeping its own bookkeeping far away from all the stuff you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it has at least two references in memory. So it takes some crazy stuff to make that possible. I, I but don't in theory. Yeah. I don't you think can, you I can don't think even in theory. Okay. The shared point implementation. Because it's waiting for the reference count to be zero. Before deleting it. Before deleting it. Yeah, but what if the reference count becomes zero? Then you don't have any references. You can't copy from it to increase it ever again. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's actually, yeah, shared point will prevent like the thing from getting deleted. Yeah. So it's in languages that are garbage collected, or if you implement a garbage collector in your C or C code. Then, then this problem also goes away, but by far, shared pointer is the easiest way. And in C++20, they're adding primitives, like template specializations for shared pointer just for atomics to make this easier. Wow, that sounds like so much fun. It's, it's a riveting old time. Yeah. So what's, what's my point with this, though, is that if you're like, oh, mutexes are so hard, they make things so complicated, lockless programming is not the answer. I have another yeah. question. I mean, I have to say, it's not at all clear to me like, right now, especially with your benchmarking, though that we can, again, uh, attribute more to your stupidity than to the, you know, speed of right, let's, efficiency let's, let's set this to run. Let's set this to run. At, so we'll go up to 12. Let's make this many fewer samples because it'll take forever to run. I, I think, but, but uh, nonetheless, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. Like I'm trying to figure out whether avoiding mutexes allow for an optimization of a thread where again, a mutex forces your thread to go to sleep, but you can, you can have a thread that has many things to do. And this would allow it to go and say, Hey, can I go do this thing safely? If not, let me go do something else. Yeah. So that can be possible. I think, I think there are cases where lock free algorithms do shine. Yeah. I think it is probably unlikely in your day-to-day -day you're going to run into too many of those cases. If you're making something that needs to be incredibly fast, incredibly uh, like reliable, then maybe. Or have guarantees. Or have guarantees. But my, my question, okay, so I'm zooming into your graph again. Mm -hmm. One of the things I noticed, and this is, I guess, just a question about queues. You have one producer, many consumers. You'd think it would be able to consume faster, no? You would think so. I think the case here is that it's a problem that has a, like, the work you're doing is very little. You're adding a string to a set. Mm. So most of your 
time wasting is going to be in contention. So the more threads you have, the more contention you'll have. I see. Which is why I think if you add threads in either direction, you're just going to increase contention and slow yourself down. Okay. Like this would be best as a single threaded program. That would be the fastest option here. I see. Well, it wouldn't be. Well, I guess you just have one guy popping it and then the thread just... Yeah. Is there like a... Um... Is there an example of like a program or something that like just runs in the background and not, which is implemented using lock pre-programming? Say that again, I didn't hear you. Is there like a, any, an example of like, you know, a common process that we know about which is implemented using lock pre-programming? Pre okay, so this is what I was actually thinking about as well. It might have been helpful to have a practical example because, you know, sometimes nerds can be accused of just whiling away coming up with ideas and things to do that are totally useless. But this has come up enough times where it just seems like it might have been useful to someone at some point, okay? So Go has this interesting feature where it's going to, it's, it's it, you know, obviously Go is a programming language that tries to multiplex these Go routines on a given thread. And it's got this greedy feature of trying to use the underlying thread as much as possible and giving the CPU very little excuse to context switch away. And I always thought about like, how does Go safely say that, hey, this Go routine is done. It's got to get off this thread. I got to go get a, another Go routine. And how does it go get this other Go routine without acquiring a mutex? Because if it goes and tries to acquire a mutex on that thread, it has to relinquish the thread it's trying to keep busy. This might be going back to what we were talking about earlier, though, oh, which is which is a spin lock before you go and acquire the mutex. I still haven't understood what you meant by spin lock. Does it use an atomic? Yeah, it uses oh, an okay. atomic. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's lock free or obstruction free or weight free, because uh, okay. you can you can be you can not use mutexes and still not be lock free. If you use spin locks, which just use atomics, right. you're still not lock free, but you're not using a mutex. Right, right. Okay, fair enough. I you see, just, yeah. Just, so the point I just made, I guess, is like, what's the point of using compare and set? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I, I think so, I just came up with one. In order to keep... No, no, but in that case, you could use a spin lock instead. But a spin lock would use compare and set. That's what you Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> okay, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> I thought you meant in your own program, not the underlying new text implementation. The underlying, yeah. yeah. I mean, I have to say, I genuinely enjoyed like reading the implementation and understanding how it works. One thing that I got clarity into is that you you assume like mutex is this kind of ultimate atomic operation, but it's actually not. There are kind of these single line CPU level instructions that can very quickly make an atomic check mm -hmm. and set for you yeah. that you can use to and i think in a lot of like but they're but, going to be faster than mutexes but you often end up putting these uh atomic operations inside while loops so as soon as you do right. that it starts becoming slower but if you don't need to do that i can imagine no again i, I if, if part of the, the the optimization is to not Ooh. context switch way you rather spin you In do graphs. see the cliff you In see graphs. the 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 cliff where you end up with more threads than... Right, so this is, uh, let's go, six, and then, yeah, you do see a marked... Inc I mean, I can't really tell if it's a real cliff, but it does look significantly worse. Uh, and in this case, I think the lock-free implementation is looking a little faster. 
This was with a lot fewer samples, though. I see. So other other Less things can dominate. Value. Yeah. It's all Chrome. It's all Chrome. Well, actually, I'm running uh, VS Code as well, so there's just a bunch of, uh, bunch of I, yeah, like, engines running around. I'm not sure how you, at all you're going to make the assumption that uh, these threads weren't context switched in and out. But it does look like that in general they they run pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the biggest thing I've get, gotten out of this is the only thing that seems to be true right now is that use these atomic operations instead of full-on mutexes if you want to avoid the thread context switching away for whatever reason. That's an optimization yeah. to you. I, I mean, what I took away is I think you can design algorithms that have are multi-threaded and still prove everything is doing work all the time, which I think is interesting. Yeah, that could be important in like safety critical systems. Yeah. So if you use this, but uh, so I, I believe, I believe this is true, but if you use this implementation of the queue with a single producer and a single consumer, yeah, I think within two or three atomic operations, you're guaranteed to get through your unqueue or your dequeue. But I'm sure somebody can call this out and be like, no, you're missing something. Because that's my point, lock-free programming is so much to keep in your head at one time. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, 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 I'm happy that I understand it. I hope that it's not something that I will really have to seriously think about with production code in real life. All right, well, we did pretty good. It's like over yeah. an hour. Anything other, uh, more interesting things we want to cover? No.